This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, George Eliot's Middlemarch is, according to Virginia Woolf, one of the few English novels written for grown-up people. Published in 1871 and 2, when George Eliot was in her early 50s, the story is set 40 years earlier, in the English Midlands of Eliot's childhood, before the coming of the Railways and the Reform Act, a time when everyone was expected to know his or her place. The main characters, Dorothea Brooke and Dr Lydgate, struggle to break free from social, social constraints and their success or failure drives the story on. In particular, Eliot explores the options for young, intelligent, resourceful women who want to make their mark on life but are expected to limit themselves to the comfort of their inevitable husbands. And there are more restraints on men than they like to think. With me to discuss Middlemarch are Rosemary Ashton, Emeritus Quain Professor of English Language and Literature at University College London, Catherine Hughes, Professor of Life Writing at the University of East Anglia, and John Bowen, Professor of 19th Century Literature at the University of York. Rosemary Ashton, George Eliot was the pen name of Mary Ann Evans. How well did you know the English Midlands? She knew the English Midlands very well indeed because she was born uh, uh, just outside Nuneaton and lived uh, in Nuneaton and Coventry, nearby Coventry, uh, until she was about 30 when she then set out for London f- to have a career. Um, most of her novels are set in uh, mainly in and around the Midlands, which she called that rich, fat country. Um, but the Midlands that she b- grew up in, although rich and green, uh, with hedgerows and orchards, which she loved... Um, was also quite industrialised. Even in, she was born in 1819, so even then there was a colliery quite near where she lived, and the main road, the coaching road to London, ran uh, alongside where she lived. So she wasn't. Um, it wasn't entirely rural. Yes, and can you give us some idea of her? Uh, her background, her early education, that sort of thing. Yes, she was the third and youngest child of um, a land agent, Robert Evans, who was land agent to the big aristocratic family, the Newdigates, uh, who lived in the rather fine Arbury Hall near Nuneaton. Uh, and Robert Evans's job was to um, take the, collect the rents from the tenants, the tenant farmers. Uh, see that the land was kept up. He did a lot of measuring and surveying. He was a carpenter by trade. Uh, really, he did a lot of the jobs that in the novel Middlemarch, Caleb Garth does. Um, uh, and that was Robert. The, the mother, Christiana, was is less well known to us. She died when um, Marianne was 16. And we know rather little about her. But Marianne's childhood was really a kind of farming, rural childhood. She went round with her father and the pony and cart to visit uh, the tenant farmers. So that's where she got her knowledge of farming and and also of land measurement and all the things that she seems to know about uh, in Middlemarch when she's writing in quite detail about people's jobs uh, did, in the country. Where did she get her knowledge of knowledge? Her knowledge of knowledge? Good question. She got that. She went to um, girls' schools and was taught French and history and geography and music um, and uh, painting, uh, the usual things that are she, middle class. You might say middle class. She was really more of the sort of upper yeoman peasant class. Uh, her father was at any rate. Um, but she was a clever girl and she she got the basic learning at school until she was 16 when her mother died and she came home to help at home to look after her father. But she also, because she was clever, uh, started reading on her own um, and she was rather a serious 
teenager. Uh, she was influenced by various teachers who had rather evangelical and um, rather prim beliefs. So what she later said, she used to go about like an owl because she didn't want to um, dress up and so on. Excuse me. As I understand it, her father got her tutors and also the yes. the lady of the realm lent her, said she could use the great library in the great house. That's right. Her and father was, Yes, her father was quite enlightened, really. He let her have a tutor um, uh, who taught her both Italian and German. And German was going to be important for her later as she uh, translated various works from German. Um, but um, And then also, yes, uh, the lady Catherine, I think, Newdigate, um, the lady of the manor, anyway, yes, let her use the library. So she read quite widely. Thank you very much. Catherine Hughes... Um no, I want, sorry, I want to ask you one more question. That's about her religion, because it was very important to her as a girl. Yes, it is. Um, her father's religion was just a kind of normal, upstanding church and state. He was a Tory and uh, went to Church of England, didn't question his beliefs. He was quite comfortable in that way. And so that's what she was brought up in. But some of her teachers at the girls' schools that she went to were more evangelical, either on the evangelical wing of the Church of England or Baptist or Quaker or Unitarian. So she met a lot of people with differing beliefs. And she also read quite a lot of um, historical exegesis of the Bible, and she lost her faith. I lost her faith in her late teens. She was 21, in fact, when it, when it finally happened. late teens, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and she, she decided uh, one day that she wasn't going to go to church with her father. This caused ructions. He wouldn't speak to her, and she very nearly had to go off, horror of horrors, to Leamington Spa to be a governess. But her brother Isaac intervened, and she came back to live with her father, and uh, they decided that she would continue to go to church, but she would not take communion, and she could think what she liked. Not a bad compromise, really, is it? It's quite I suspect decent. quite a lot of people would accept that compromise. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Catherine Hughes, how established was George Eliot as a writer when she had Middlemarch in mind? Well, she starts thinking about it really 1868, and by that time she, she's preeminent, along with Dickens and Trollope. You know, she's one of the triumvirate, the great. Why is that? Because. Mainly because of the books that she wrote much earlier in yeah, her career. I know it's books, but can you tell the listeners which books? <laughs> Adam, I was going to say Adam Bede, which is her first book, yeah. Mill on the Floss, Silas Marner. The first three books are, are huge, popular and critical hits. And, of course, they're set in the same, same location as Middlemarch, so they're, they're Warwickshire, they're based on memories of her childhood. They've been huge. They've been fantastic. What happens after that? She did become rich and famous. Well, she became rich and famous. I, I was going to say really young. No, she wasn't young because she started late. But she, she became rich and famous as a, as a fledgling author. In her 30s. Late, late 30s, into mm. her 40s. Then what happens, I, I don't think she would have seen it like this, but I think we might see it looking back. It's a sort of mid-career slump because she starts to produce books that just don't do as well. They don't engage people. Uh, there's Romola, which is a very, very dense historical novel set in uh, Renaissance Florence. Uh, it's not an easy read. And there's Felix Holt, which is set in um, Warwickshire and concerns the Reform Bill, but he's kind of... A bit dead and a bit dry. Yeah, I remember buying readers <laughs> when I was a kid thinking, oh, it's a radical, I'll have a go at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think it's quite interesting because we tend to think of her career as being a sort of unbroken triumph. You know, she just hops from high point to high point, but actually not. So by the time she's sitting down to think about Middlemarch, actually there's quite a lot at stake. Uh, 
interestingly, she wasn't even sure she wanted to write a novel. She thought she might want to write an epic poet on uh, an epic poem on Timoleon, who's a f- 4th century BC Greek statesman, so instead of Middlemarch. We are very lucky we that she did escape, yeah. yeah. Now, you, as I understand it, Middlemarch started as, as a possibly two books, and then it ended up as Middlemarch. Yeah, absolutely. It's so stu- what were the two books? Well, the first book that she starts is called Middlemarch. And it's the bit, it's the town bit of Middlemarch. So if we think of the Vinces, Featherstone, Bulstrode, the people that live in the town in the Middlemarch that we know. Um, and she gets quite far with that and then sort of runs into a buffer. You know, it's just not going anywhere. So she starts another book. It's actually a short story called Miss Brooke. And that's about Dorothea. It's about the county. It's about the country people. That's that side of the book. So it's the Chethams, the Brooks, those, those people. Casorbon and so forth. And then she runs into a slight problem with that. And she has the brainwave as sort of smooshing them together. She realises, actually, these are two aspects of the same book, the same work of art. And she starts gradually to bring them together. She rewrites. She goes right back to the beginning. She puts Miss Brooke at the beginning. So if you think of Middlemarch, the first ten chapters are all about Dorothea and Casorbon. And then in chapter 10, we switch over to Middlemarch when the Middlemarchers, the men, the tradesmen, come to dinner uh, with Mr Brooke. So county and town come together. Once you started on this merger, did she think, I've got it? Um, I don't think so. I don't think she was the sort of woman that ever thought, I've got it. No, and, I, I was very interested to read <laughs> how anxious she was and how much... Because yeah. you think it's, it's this genius just flows on. No, no, no. She was really wanted her husband to pat her on the back or pat her on the pen every day, didn't she? Yeah, and actually, if you look at the manuscript... Oh, how wasn't her husband? Sorry. Sorry, and her partner. <laughs> <laughs> Although that's that's not the word she used. She, she would use husband, in fact. But um, certainly the man that she lived with to whom she wasn't married, George Henry Lewis. If you look at the manuscript, there's a lot of rewriting. There's certain characters she had real struggles with Rosamond, interestingly, doesn't really come to life until quite far along in the in the writing process, which is strange because she seems such a fully fully realised uh, character. But she gets going, and the book comes out. And uh, is it um, well? Let's before we took the reception, John. John Bowen turned to you. Can you just give listeners a, a skim through the main points of the book? Yes. Yeah. So there are four main plot strands to the book. The first is Dorothea Brooke, who in many ways is the central character. She's beautiful, she's an heiress, she's 18, she's full of uh, intellect and spiritual energy, and she thinks she'll find an outlet for this in a marriage to a man called Kazobon, who's an elderly clergyman, and it's a disastrous marriage. And it's um, a hateful lack of sympathy between the two. Fortunately, he dies, and he has what a... What did he die? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he leaves a clause in his will saying that she won't inherit his wealth if she marries a man called Will Ladislaw, who's his second cousin, who's young and ardent and eager, and Dorothy loves him, and he loves her. And the whole later movement of the novel is they're, they're coming together, and at the end they marry and leave Middlemarch. That's the first. The second strand is another great idealist, Tertius Lydgate, who's a young doctor, comes to the town, full of energy, wants to transform it. He too makes a disastrous marriage to Rosamond Vincent. He Vinci. wants to transform medicine. He's been at Edinburgh and Paris and he, he wants to be a man who leads the way in particularly tissue... Dis- Absolutely. He both wants to do fundamental research That's into right. tissues and to build a new hospital. And again, a fatally bad marriage. Again, a complete lack of sympathy. And he's destroyed, really, through debt and through gossip and moves out of Middlemarch with Rosamond, his wife, at the end. 
The third and more positive one is Fred Vinci and Mary Garth, who've loved each other since childhood. He's a bit feckless. He hasn't finished his degree at Cambridge, but she stands by him. And they marry and they stay and they flourish in Middlemarch. And the fourth one is the Bulstrode, the banker, who has a finger in every pie in Middlemarch. And, and he has a deep, dark past. He does. Yes. He's, he's a, a murderer, a fraud. And, that sort of thing. And, the, and he too moves away at the end. There's a very moving scene with his wife. Um, so even he has a moment of sympathy um, when she takes her, her jewels off and they don't speak to each other, but then they move away and we know nothing of what happens to them afterwards. But these mesh together in Middlemarch. Why did she call, do you think she called it, why did she call the novel by the place name Middlemarch? It's, a really, it's a really interesting choice because usually it's either abstract things like Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice or a name, it's Emma or Tom Jones or something. Um, I think the middle matters because it's in the middle of England, it's the middle decades, and it's about the middle classes mainly. And March is good because it's both a place, like the marches of Wales or something, but also a movement onwards. And the novel is full of the tension between being in a place and wanting to move on. But also the subtitle matters. She calls it a study of provincial life. Why so, does she use study? Well, it's interesting. It's both a study like an artist might do a study, but the also a serious sociological... <laughs> yes. I don't suppose well, you'd like that. But... <laughs> but, but also, of course, a serious sociological study. Uh, and she's very interested in contemporary sociology and contemporary psychology. Um, so it's a brave title, I think. Um, not initially an attractive one, but it absolutely captures the great ambition of the book. And when it came out, uh, Rose Rashton, um well, let's just stay with Middlemarch for a second. How evocative would that be to the readers in 1871 when it came out, given that it was set in, let's say, 1830? So even we're 40 years on, which is, happens quite often with novels, doesn't it? People set things 40 years on, and there's a play for it. <laughs> Never mind. The, um, how, how would that resonate with the readers that she then picked up in, in, in scores uh, with this book? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I I suppose, uh, I mean, as Catherine's already said, she was well known for novels about the Midlands. um, And in particular, her, her first full novel, Adam Bede, was very much set in the same surroundings and um, and with the same sort of social set although in Middlemarch what she's doing is extending the social set from the working class, the rural poor to the middle class to the uh, almost aristocracy, the gentry really round about uh, the Brooks, the the Cadwalladers and the Chettams are the characters in that strand of the novel. Um, so I think people would have thought, well, it's another novel by George Eliot. Let's see what it's like. Um, whether they would have got all the, the references that we've now just looked at, I don't know, not until they'd read it. They would once they've read it, I think. The idea of middleness is very important. Middle England, yes. And, uh, but also, um, a lot of the people in it are of middling class, and she's very interested in that class. That was the class, after all, in the time in which it was set, which is 1829, specifically to 1832, and the passing of the First Reform Act. That was a time when the middle classes were being enfranchised. And an awful lot had flowed over those decades. I mean, industrial England uh, really gained, with the railways, just gained steam. Mm -hmm. And how... 
How did people read the, read the novel? Were they nostalgic for it? Or, can you just give us some idea? Oh, this is about us. What's going on? Yes, well, responses to the novel were almost entirely, at least the, the, the written ones, the published ones, the uh, critiques, were almost entirely positive. And they did like, they, there were things they didn't like about the novel, like Will Ladislaw, for example. And some of them didn't like her scientific metaphors. Um, we were talking a moment ago about um, a study of provincial life. Partly the narrator comes on as a kind of scientist with the microscope. Um, and some really didn't like that they but they did like the 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 portrait of country life really um amongst a set of families um who's going to marry whom the, you know the kind of the rather more conventional things uh in in 19th century novels which had been going at least since uh, Jane Austen um and they liked that um and they looked for that i think it, in Middlemarch, as they would do in any other novel how did they take a, a multiple a multiple and sometimes recondite references I mean, they always have to look up in the back, as I often did. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, they didn't have um, edited volumes and penguin volumes with notes well, at the I, end. Did um, I have to ask the vicar? What did they do? <laughs> I mean, I suppose... I, I mean, George Eliot, she... She, there are learned references, it's true. Um, I think, but you don't need them, really, in a way. You don't no, need to no, know exactly where just... they come from. And she is fairly explanatory, too. She does, uh, I, and she's also sometimes humorous. So when she's being, or when the narrator or one of the characters is being rather learned and recondite, she can actually sometimes make them rather amusing. Oh, it's very nice, like stepping stones to come across them. I just wondered if you're yes. doing. you want to say something? Then I'm coming to. It's also the lots of the the novel is full of historical references that pin it down to a particular place and time. And in a way, for lots of Victorians, it would have been their childhood or their adolescence. Yes, or yeah, the, right. And so I think it's it's a novel about the creation of the world that they saw around them when the railways are coming, when the Reform Act is being passed just before Victoria's on the throne. And Victoria is quite, quite a good... She and Victoria were born around about the same Absolutely time. So. Um, Catherine, um, does reform define the characters in Middlemarch to any extent, the idea of reform? I think it's absolutely central. Yes. Everybody, or at least all the main characters, want to change something profoundly. They want to change the world around them. And what the, the book does so brilliantly is watch them watch them do that and watch their idealism sort of knock up against reality, uh, realising that actually there are things that you really, really can't do. So Dorothea, for instance, wants to actually completely uh, revolutionise, and that's really not too strong a word, uh, the relationship between the gentry and their tenants. She wants to design cottages. This is a woman obsessed with designing model cottages. You know, she's never got architecture plans off her lap. She wants to have a completely different relationship. She wants to socially engineer um, what that what that might be like. Of course, what she realises is that as a woman, she's got very, very limited scope. She's a clever woman, but as, as the narrator says, you know, she's had a sort of toy box education. She hasn't actually got the grounding that she needs, which leaves her then so vulnerable to these kind of idealistic kind of, uh, you know, sweeps of imagination. She's, there's also her, her, her uncle, the charming but just awful Mr Brooke, who is the local, one of the local squires, who decides, he's about 60, he decides he's going to go in for reform. He's going being, to, being the worst landlord in the district. The worst landlord <laughs> in the district. So he thinks, um, I'm on the side of progress, I'm, I'm the sort of chap that does progress. I like that idea. I'm you know, going to reform myself I'm down with the kids. With. <laughs> but what he doesn't understand—he no, doesn't say that. <laughs> what he doesn't understand is that you know you are if you're going to be that sort of landlord, you need to mend gates, you need to give rent rebates, you need to actually be very, very actively engaged in the way that Dorothea 
is, his niece is, but she doesn't have that kind of cultural capital that allows her to put these things in, into, into action. And then you've got Tertius Lydgate, who, in a sense, comes into the novel not just advocating change, but being changed. You know, everything about him seems like he's going to be on the side of the angels. He's going to push things through. Uh, he's very, as you said, you know, he's very well qualified in the new ways of doing medicine, France and Scotland. You know, he's, he absolutely absorbed all the latest learning. He wants to actually reform the way medicine is done, make it into a proper, proper profession rather than a slightly kind of nefarious thing where doctors flog medicines that their patients don't really need in order to get a better income. He wants to make it a proper profession. That's all admirable. But, of course, what he, he doesn't really understand is that his life has changed as well. He's the younger son of a, a, a gentry, so he's the nephew of a, a baronet. He can't live like a gentleman anymore. Now that he's a, he's a professional man and a, and a man in a slightly kind of emerging profession, he's got to, you know, cut his co coat to suit his cloth. He doesn't get that. So there's a sense in which he can reform other people, he can reform a profession, he can't actually look inwards. John, John Byrne... Um... Why does Dorothea Brooke make the what proves to be disastrous match? For every reader must know, must be saying, just don't do that. There can't be a reader who's ever read it who says you're doing the wrong thing, Dorothea. But she does it despite all of us. Yes, Barbara Boriton says it's like a, like a child dancing into a quicksand on a summer morning, yeah. and that that's what it's like, really. And it's you, it's it's awful to watch it happening. But tell I, people, just can you give me out like Yeah. So she she yeah, she meets an elderly clergyman. Elderly, forty three. That's a bit of a. Worry, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he's 46. Oh, 46. <laughs> I, I, I count him 46. Well, in, one of you say he's 46. Let's say in the mid-40s. He has an elderly, elderly demeanour. An ageing person. Who's working on a great project called The Key to All Mythology. So he's someone else, a bit like Lydgate, who wants to find a fundamental structure underneath everything. Um, but it's a disastrous project, and um, he gets completely caught up in the details, and he'll never finish it. But Dorothy Thea sees him as a great soul, and that she can both educate herself, she can learn Greek and Hebrew, helping him, but also to make this great achievement into the world. So this, this sort of rather dim clerical figure, who nobody else finds attractive at all, she sees the possibility of doing a great work in the world and of educating herself. And it turns out, of course, to be fatal to her. It's a disastrous marriage. There's no sympathy. But that's why she wants, that's what she sees in him, that she can be like, he's like Milton or Locke or one of these great historic figures she believes. Yes. We know he isn't. Yes. And, and the, the, he has no sympathy in the community either, does he? He's well off and so on, but, um, but he doesn't seem to do much bickering stuff. But um, he, he does look after his tenants in a way that Mr. Brook does. does. Yeah. Uh, and so there's nothing there for, for Dorothy for to reproach. do. Yeah. Um, but no, he's a dried up old stick, really. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you both got your hands up. <laughs> well, on on that last point, um, he has a curate who does who lives in the vicarage and does most of the sermonising. And he himself, um, Mr. Brooke, thinks he might become a bishop one day. And he, of course, is pursuing his researches in the grand house, Loic Manor. Um, so he's he's. Actually, that's quite interesting because it, it relates also to the fact that George Eliot often has... She needs to have clergymen in her novels. If she's looking at, at a country a, a town and villages and so on in the 1830s, she has to have clergymen. But she does not put them in the pulpit. She doesn't have them um, sermonising <laughs> because she herself had become humanist in her beliefs. And her belief was that if a clergyman had a role, the role was to be to help people, not to preach to them. That was a bit of radical at the time, wasn't it? It was quite radical, yeah. yes. 
I just wanted to say that, of course, the reason Kasovan is in such dire straits uh, is made quite explicit. It's because he doesn't read German, mm. so he's not up to date with the cutting-edge um, scholarship that would say, actually, your project is completely bogus. So there's, there's a sense of a man who's completely cut off from reform, from intellectual life. And what, what happens is you end up stultified. You end up, as Mrs. Cabalada says, a bladder for peas to rattle in. But to go back to John for a moment, the consequences of that marriage are quite soon disastrous. And yes. there's the icy honeymoon in Rome. Yes, the honeymoon in Rome is, I think, one of the greatest scenes in the novel in which Dorothea, with her toy box education, suddenly encounters all these fragments from the past, full of fragments of uh, knowledge and desire that she can't simply understand at all. And Kazoban and, can't help her at all to, to through all that. And she has a great crisis there, and that's when she sees Will, mm. who is working with an artist there in, in Rome. And suddenly there's a moment of uh, kind of... She, she feels Rome like an electric shock, it says. Um, at the same time, meeting that that terrible shock of disordering her consciousness is this moment of sympathy with Will. Uh, and from that, that starts to build the relationship in which gradually she comes uh, to realise that she loves him and he loves her um, and that it's suddenly a kind That's of a life and coming, though, energy. It? it is a long time <laughs> yeah. coming. I mean, we're, uh, way, we're way down the, the years and the, and, and the book. Rosemary Ashton, Tertius Lidgate, he's, he's almost the balancing figure with Dorothea. Let's leave it at that. We we'll move on. Yes, but what is what is what obstacles are there in the way? It's been mentioned, mentioned. But could you develop it? What obstacles are there in the way to his success? The success to what he wants to do. Yes. Um, well, as has just been mentioned, um, instead of studying at Oxford or Cambridge, which were the only two English universities until University College itself in London opened in 1828, so too late to be a, 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 a feature in this novel. Um, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, where uh, medics uh, studied anatomy uh, theoretically, but they didn't actually have teaching hospitals. Whereas in Edinburgh, you had teaching hospitals associated with the university. And in Paris, you, you there was the new stethoscope which had been um, uh, devised, only invented a few years before. Um, and so Lydgate makes the choice to go and uh, uh, learn medicine where people are actually progressing. And so he comes back to Britain and he thinks he wants to go to a, um, a, a bustling Midlands town um, where he can be of use. He can help the poor, he can set up a fever hospital because cholera is uh, on the horizon again and he wants to do uh, proper uh, doctoring rather than uh, the, the kind of rather sort of elite doctoring that the physicians do which is actually just to look at people and diagnose them but not do any more. Isn't um, a bit re unrealistic of him? He is a bit unrealistic, yes. I mean, that, we, we, we delve into his background. I mean, George Eliot goes back into his background and shows that he... Um, uh, well, she shows rather movingly how he came to his vocation um, as a schoolboy on vacation, on, on holiday, reading in the library and opening an encyclopedia and it opening at, at the page for uh, valves, the valves of the heart. And because he knows from his Latin that valve are folding doors, he sort of gets a picture of how his body works. And she says, I mean, she's very funny about this, as well as being very serious about him finding the passion of a vocation she says oh for all he knew up to that point his brains could lie in bags at his temples but now he's got the passion and the, ima and the imaginative passion so she's really showing Lydgate as a kind of creative figure in a sense you know as someone who's imaginative and exploratory and wants to move on and do great things. Catherine, Catherine Hughes, um, we've, the church has been mentioned and the clergy clutter the book uh, what reality have they what real force do they have? 
Well, I think Rosemary's absolutely right. In Middlemarch. Yeah, in Middlemarch. What happens is that we don't see much vicaring. There's really two church services, I think. There's a a funeral, which is actually just about people gossiping and gawping at the mourners. And there's a church service where Will turns up because he wants to have a look at Dorothea, who he's got a crush on. So, in other words, the church is not central in that way. Um, for, for Eliot, I mean, Eliot is the great humanist, along with so many other intellectuals of, the, of that time. She'd lost her faith, but she'd sort of found it again by working, uh, translating Feuerbach, great German theologian who'd written The Essence of Christianity. He suggests that, you know, if you want to find God, you have to find God in other people, in yourself and in other people. And what Eliot's doing, I think, in the novel is showing people trying to bungle their way towards that without the help of an actual God, divine presence. What they're trying to do is find some kind of divine meaning and spark in their relationships with other people. And of course, that's really hard to do because other people are very, very annoying. It's very, very hard to feel good about other people all the time. And that's what we see. So we have Fairbrother, who's the vicar, um, he's not a very good vicar, he's a good but he's a fantastic player, though, a wish man. Player. He's a very good wish player. He's very good at collecting insects. Uh, he's a great natural historian, and he's a great, kind man. And that's the kind of model that I think she's looking for. John? Yes, and what he does, of course, is he sacrifices the woman he loves, really. He helps someone else, Fred Vincey, marry Mary Garth. And so it's a kind of Christian renunciation, but done in a completely secular way. And that's often the pattern in the book, that she'll take Christian ideas and then see the way that they work in human and uh, material and everyday ways. And Fairbrother encapsulates that. What, what, are the, what measures of success do you see in the main relationships in the book? Or failure, I think, is a better word to use. Well, there are two the absolutely disastrous marriages, and I think the most chilling bit in the book, I think, is the marriage of Rosamund Vincy to, to Lydgate. There's a, there's a, there are two people utterly preoccupied <laughs> with each other and almost no sympathy between them. And I think that, you know... George Rosamund Ell- is, uh, is, is thought to be in Middlemarch, very beautiful, uh, had a, a lady's education, thinks Middlemarch is too small for her great talents and, and allure, and sees Lydgate, an upper-class chap, with a, uh, just the person to lift her out of this morass of Middlemarsh. Yes, she's the perfect kind of commodified woman of the period. Um, And um, has also the most ruthless egotism, I think, that the whole world, anything that in the world that doesn't uh, suit her is an annoyance. And um, she believes that the world should simply accommodate itself to her desires. And that's a disastrous marriage. And And she has no sympathy with Lydgate's idealism. She's a very realistically material person. So the, there are the, those are the disastrous marriages. And the good one, I think, um, uh, is the one between Mary Garth and Fred Vincey, who have been childhood sweethearts. Given the times and given what was happening, her, and given the, the sensuous nature of some of the book, how did she, did she, how did she and given her own sexual uh, um, um, interest, uh, how did she set about putting that side of the story into the book? Yeah, some people see it as a very intellectual novel, I think, but one thing that she's very interested in is showing the very close relationship between intellectual and sensory and sensual and bodily life. So the descriptions of the meetings, say, between Will and Dorothea are, are very, very embodied, I think. Um, I think often... Um, the characters, the young lovers in the book, are often described a bit like children too, so that Dorothea is often quite like a child and Will has a particular sympathy with children. Uh, And it's also true that Fred and Mary fell in love as children. So some people have seen that as a lack of erotic passion in the book, but I think it's often uh, seen in this kind of uh, 
trembling bodiliness that often uh, irrigates the, the great scenes of passion in the book. Uh, in fact, just to add to that, the, the, the tragedy of the relationship between Lydgate and Rosamond is that they are sexually and physically attracted to one another. They can't stop, especially he can't stop stroking her hair and doing her plaits. And, and in the meantime, though, they cannot agree on anything. Um, and George Eliot talks about them missing one another's mental track. Every time she, he says something, she takes it some way and she closes off discussion. Um, and uh, Lydgate, your sympathies, sympathies are with Lydgate, who is is really um, stymied at every point, uh, checkmated, as, as, as is said. And he has to wear the yoke, another of George Eliot's metaphors, to describe the misery of this marriage, which Henry James said he thought, he said he thought the th- scenes between um, Rosamond and Lydgate were the most intelligent thing in English fiction. I think he's right. And another important key factor in the relationship there, as elsewhere in the book, it's one of the, the stratums that go strata. The ghost of the books is debt. And uh, they haven't got enough money, and Lydgate uh, and, and Rosamond, and and he starts to, and he gets in the way in a very big way. Yes, it does. It spoil it, the marriage is spoiled largely because they get into debt, but they get into debt also because they don't talk to one another and don't agree with one another, and uh, they're both to blame to some extent for that. Rosamond because of her airs and graces, and and uh, assuming that if Lydgate doesn't earn enough money as a doctor, well, he can tap his uh, rich baronet uncle or his uh, useless captain cousin. Um, but you see, Lydgate doesn't want to do that. He wants to be an independent man. But then he too has been brought up um, knowing that there will always be nice glass, crystal glass on the table. And he hasn't thought about how he's going to arrange a household. Actually, of course, he falls into the engagement by mistake in the first place. He's flirting, he's he's attracted to Ros- Rosamond uh, and people start to talk. This is where Middlemarch, the, the, the place, comes into it, the social gossip. People are talking about this. Are you engaged? Uh, you know, her aunt comes and says, to her, Rosamond, why are you acting as if you're engaged to Dr Lydgate? And of course this is awful and then Lydgate uh, has to, is, is warned and stays away and then he turns up and then they, they, they kiss and you know it goes on like this and it's really quite romantic but also um, useless. I mean they, they just can't manage money. But money is rather important in other ways too in Middlemarch. I mean Georgia it's almost like Balzac. Um, all her characters um, either suffer because they don't have any money or but perversely, Dorothea suffers because she's got too much and nobody lets her do what she, wants, do what with she wants with it. <laughs> Catherine, um, can you just briefly give us a portrait of Will Lade's Law and why, is it, why he is important? Do you know, I wish I could give you a portrait. Oh, well, shall we move on? No. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, I think, I mean, this, this, this is not a new thought. Other people have thought it, but he's very, very difficult to pin down. Now, he's, can you just play? Who's he? He's... He is Give us some basics, please. Sorbonne's second cousin, or possibly, I think, first cousin once removed. He is um, a young protégé of uh, Sorbonne and then of Mr Brooke. Mm-hmm. And through those relationships, he meets Dorothea Brooke. And uh, while they are obviously subtly attracted to each other, while Dorothea is still uh, married to the terrible 47-year-old Kosorbon, <laughs> um, once, you know, once she's free... They uh, and and Casalba does a very wicked thing. He says she mustn't marry Will, and he leaves a will to that effect. But once that's overturned, they come together. And I think the the problem is, it just he never seems more than a plot device. Um, he's described endlessly. He's got a sort of Byronic swagger to him. He's he's likened to Shelley and to Byron. Uh, he's often referred to as a sort of patch of light, as if he's aerial. Um, he ends up as an MP. Sorry. 
He ends up as an MP. Well, yes, that's at the end of the book. Um, at one point, I think uh, George Eliot says he 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 bounded across the across the park like spring incarnate. Yeah. I don't. Was he a bunny? Did he have green hair? I mean, it's, it's spring bound. Never mind. It's <laughs> really, really, really hard to understand what he is. Um, Can we move to, to another plot, the, the cheerful plot in the book, it's, uh, which is uh, Fred Vincy and Mary Garth, uh, childhood lovers. Um, can I go back to you, John, for a second, then come back uh, there? Um, they, uh, they're very attractive, both of them, aren't they? Even though Fred's a sort of feckless gambler, he doesn't want to be a clergyman and he... He's failed his exams in Cambridge, which is attractive in itself. And then he, and then he does. He gets a, when he sells a horse. You know, he sets off that side to sell a horse. And he's just, he's just waiting for, for something terrible to happen to the horse. And of course, something terrible does happen to the horse that he buys, and so on. Um, they're, they're a good leavening in the book. Those two. Yes, they're so interesting. And they're the two main families in the book, the Vinces and yeah. the Garths. And you see the whole world that they come from. Uh, and Mary Garth, I think, is probably in some ways the most attractive character in the book. She's not physically good-looking, um, but she's witty and she's educated and she always has a, a kind of good humour about her. Um, so that she, there's one point where George Eliot says she liked her thoughts and there's a sense that she has a kind of contentment with her own intellectual mm. activity. Her mother had been a teacher. She herself is going to be a teacher at one point in the book and she sticks with uh, Fred even though he you know he he runs up a debt himself and then gets the family into debt so he does some very bad things um, but she's faithful to him and in a way she is one of those women who sacrifices things in order to make a man better that you get in lots of Victorian fiction. But she, she said but it makes him sacrifice himself too. She's absolutely. tough on him, isn't she? Absolutely. And that, I think, is where George Eliot really makes it distinctive, I think. And, and they stay on in Middlemarch yeah. in the end and they, they bring out its best qualities. Can I bring up something which, which might be controversial in this comment? Very sorry about this, Rosemary. I was talking to somebody last night who'd re- who reads the book every year and he's always moved by the end of the book uh, and how... And he's, he's a very, uh, very good reader. I won't embarrass him by mentioning his name. Um, but the, as we all know, at the end of the book, um, the Dorothea's effect was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might uh, have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. It's a wonderful thought, and this chap said yes, and I think you're very moved by it. I'd like to ask you, do you think that's true? You mean what what she's actually yeah. saying there in the finale? Uh, well, she. I think that if you look back through the novel, she has demonstrated it to be true, at least in Dorothea's case, because we haven't talked about this. It's a, such a complex novel. But at some point, a very important point, Dorothea, despite being sexually jealous and anxious herself about her feelings for Will Ladislaw and so on, this is after the death of Mr. Casaubon, the inconvenient Mr. Casaubon, um, despite feeling sexually jealous of Rosamond and thinking that Rosamond and Will are having an affair and so on and so on, she makes a kind of, a sort of strong sacrifice. She has a night of of weeping and not sleeping and then she gets up in the morning, sees the sunrise, sees a family. Uh, It's rather, it's kind of emblematic. Sees a young family going off to start their day's work in the fields and she thinks, this story, i.e. her own unhappiness about what what Will is doing, possibly doing with Rosamond, is not mine alone. There are other people here. I know 
know that the Rosamond uh, and Lydgate family uh, uh, marriage is an unhappy one. And she goes to see Rosamond. It's a big moment later on in the novel. And she goes to see Rosamond to try to make uh, amends, to try and explain to Rosamond that Lydgate, although to some extent disgraced because of debts and money and suspicions over somebody's death, you know, that, that she should stick by him. And so that, I think, is her major act in the novel, which you, then justifies that business of, you know, uh, incalculably diffusive uh, effect on people. I'm not going to bang on about it, but I think we better move on then. Really? Unless somebody's got anything. No, let's move on. It just strikes me as a, a wonderful statement. And then I thought, well, is it true? Never mind. I mean, it's true some of the time. You've proved it. It's true in the book. You've proved it. So we need to go on about that, John. I think incalculably matters. I think yes. it's a moment when the novelist renounces a kind of control and she yes. says, we don't know. We can't calculate this. Um, we can't calculate virtue in the world. And it allows the novel to, to end in, on that note, I think. And also, in fact, she says, doesn't she, that lots of people, gossip, gossipy people, said, what a shame Dorothea ended up in such a sort of narrow way. But then the narrator asks, but what could she have done in that? What, 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 what sphere was open to her? The whole point about the book, and we open with this idea, is that you know, there's not much for women to do. This is not an epic age. Dorothea does what she can, and she does the best she can, and that's good enough. Is that why you want to leave it with Dorothea, then? Because I, I, you, you sort of dismiss Will. Uh, lots of, uh, not you, no, who, I'm told in these notes that lots of academics, uh, yeah. lots of yeah. women academics, they might be, am I treading on ground? Why is that? I can feel the glass cutting under my feet. <laughs> saying that, that Dorothea sort of threw herself away on this worthless job. I don't think he's worthless. I think he's rather attractive in a lot of ways. Really? I mean, yeah. David, Cecil, David Cecil said, the great David Cecil, mid 20th century critic, said, you know, he was a schoolgirl's idea of what a, what a, you know, nice hero. Yes, we should have be. To take, I mean, David Cecil was charming <laughs> I mean, and he wants a wonderful book. We don't have to take him as a sort of word of God, do I'm we? Just I, try to build up a case. I mean, I'm not the only one. I, I think what, what a lot of people expected at the time, because the novel came mm. out in parts yeah. and the critics were agog to see what was going to happen. And of course, since George Eliot's two major centres of consciousness, as she calls them, are Dorothea and Lydgate, and once Casobon's gone, the idea then is, oh, these two, and, and there's trouble in the Lydgate marriage, these two will come together. And people were Appointed that she didn't end up marrying Lydgate. And of course, in a sense, she could have been then a very helpful doctor's wife. Yeah. Instead, she becomes a helpful wife to Will Ladislaw, who, after the end of the novel, becomes uh, an ardent radical MP. We don't see him. That's the problem. Final word, John. Yes, I mean, I, I think I, I find Will uh, a rather moving figure. Yeah. I think um, he. The novel is very interesting, the performance of gender, I think, and it both wants to resist lots of the normal ways that people uh, act out there, um, being a woman or being a man, and I think Will is someone who resists lots of the stereotypes about being a man in the 19th century. Well, thank you very much. It was a terrific romp. Thank all of you. Rosemary Ashton, Catherine Hughes and John Byrne. Next week is Particle Physics. We'll be discussing the proton. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Now, what did we not say that we should urgently have said? Did you think, let's, can we go back to that end thing? Because I just queried it. I, I knew, I, um, I mean, I, I would like to believe in it.
Yes. You know, those little well, angles, I've only remembered that. There's Wordsworth is at that as well, yes. isn't yeah. and, and of course, Wordsworth is in her mind a lot yes, of the time. Yes. Early on, she says something about um, hard... She more or less quotes hard task to analyse a soul from yeah. the prelude, yeah. and that's what she's uh, interested in doing, and she sees the, the difficulties of life, and she sees the disappointments. I mean, I think the ending is kind of... It's, it's her idea of meliorism, which is between optimism and pessimism as a philosophy of life. Yeah. And she wants to be... She wants to, her novel to be realistic. I think that's yeah. why she resisted uh, bringing Dorothy and Lydgate together. It would have been too romantically apt. Yeah. And therefore not... Uh, not gritty realism that she goes for, but it is uh, it is a thought through realism. Yeah. She wants I'm she sure, sees that people yeah. are disappointed in life. Sorry, sorry. I mean, one thing you could say is that this is a novel that couldn't imagine George Eliot herself being in it. So clearly, she wasn't trapped. She's the, exactly the same generation as it were as Dorothea, but she strove to be this much bigger figure than Dorothea was at the end. Um, but it would be almost impossible to imagine her writing a novel in which there was a figure like herself in it. I think. But of course, in Daniel Deronda, her next novel. Well, she does then try and think of the female artist, um, Alcarizzi, who's a very different kind of figure. So I think that um, in one way there is a realism. The whole novel is about tempering people's ideals with the realities of the world. Um, but it's also true that Georgie Eliot herself radically broke from that. But that's... Well, we never, we never, I don't know why we missed it. It's my fault. But we never sort of pointed out to people who didn't know that she lived with a man who was married with no, children. And we should have pointed I, I, that out. And she just got on with it, didn't she? Yes. Um, she, well, she did, but of course she suffered. She suffered, yeah, yeah, she social, you know, what's the word? Alienation. Alienation. I, I mean, also, I think it's it's exactly, of course, what John said, which makes her made her so difficult in, say, in the nineteen seventies. We had the new wave of feminist <coughs> criticism, scholarship, Anglo-American scholarship. It's very difficult to feel warm towards because here's a woman who seemed to have a, a blessed, charmed, liberated life, and she wouldn't allow, you know, Georgia. You know, Georgia had had everything and she wouldn't allow it to her the characters in her novels and that, and so there was a sort of feeling of you know, what's going on here. it's a sort of exceptionalism that's slightly unattractive yeah. Yeah. Except she didn't have everything no. because you know she she suffered from from <laughs> losing her family her beloved older brother uh, didn't speak to her again until she married very late in life a man 20 years younger than herself and then Isaac wrote her the little note saying congratulations on being married whereas yeah. he's you know he'd broken off relations when she yeah. set up with Lewis who was mm. Of course, the real love of her life and her great but, helpmate. But you can see for feminist wow. country criticism in in the seventies when everybody's re re kind of cooperating the Brontes and even Jane Austen and Emily Dickinson, all those people. You can see it's Elliot it just sticks out as not being part of the gang, really, of oppressed women. more than anybody else, she analyses the difficulties. Look at Maggie and yeah, in, in exactly. Maggie Tulliver in Milner and the Floss. She analyses the difficulties that young women have, and in a sense she's more realistic. I think exactly. she's more realistic. I don't think it's so much that she doesn't want her, her female characters to have what she had. I think she sees that she was rather unusual um, in what she gained, but she also knows what she lost. Yeah. And I, I think she does want to actually make it. It is a kind of feminist point to say, what could Dorothea do? with yeah. all this money that she can't actually do anything useful with. One, one thing I think we haven't talked about is how beautifully it's written. We were talking about yes. that. And that it, it's both extraordinarily self-conscious about its realism and is always drawing attention to how strange language is, how strange interpretation is, how many different possibilities of interpretation are opened all the time. And also it's just full of quotable moments and very funny moments and extraordinary subtle depictions of the processes and changes of consciousness. So, so I'd like to register that too. Yes, and, and it's, and it's done through a series of um, 
uh, of extended metaphors. I mean, we talked to she, she herself as, as, as narrator talks about this particular web of uh, interactions and, and movements that she's looking at and society is a web. And then Lydgate, she talks about Lydgate getting uh, caught in the hampering thread-like pressures of the social petty politic politics of the town. So that's the web again. And then again, Rosamond, when she falls in love with Lydgate, because she's really only been waiting for a, a handsome outsider to come in so that she can fall in love with him. Um, she starts spinning the gossamer web of romance. And so there are, the, and then there's the yoke, which they all put on their shoulders when they marry wrongly. Um, and that runs through it. So there are quite a few uh, rather striking um, and well-used metaphors which glue the thing together. Mm. Um, Henry James said that it was a it was a novel of um, a treasure house of detail, but an indifferent whole. But he's wrong because actually she works very well at both integrating all the different themes and the plots, all the four plots and so on. She moves between them. She does the weaving really extremely well, and she does it partly by means of um, metaphors which. Henry James, Henry James could be relied upon to say something ever so slightly snide about George yes, Eliot. Yes, know, that was his true. main job yeah. in life at this point. Oh, well, he's an up-and-coming novelist. He's very. She's the. She's the, the the great bad mother that he's got to kind of overcome at some point. And he, he thinks she's terrific. She, he thinks she's fantastic, but he also doesn't want her to be quite that great. He he tries to get in with her. He sort of doesn't. He, he makes a yes. couple of aborted visits. He's a bit of a stalker, really. He makes a couple of aborted visits to her house. Um. So he always has these these things he says. Visits, a couple of abortive visits. It doesn't sound to me like a stalker. No, no, they're not abortive visits. He, he visits a couple visits. of times with various Americans who are friendly who yeah. always visit George Eliot. She has a salon on a Sunday yeah, afternoon or whatever. But, I mean, um, well, he arrives on a, 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 at a time when um, Lewis's son, Thorny, uh, Thorny yeah. has just come yeah. back from uh, Natal with um, tuberculosis of the yeah. spine and he's writhing in agony on the floor. And actually, Henry James is rather disgraceful in the way yeah. he describes this rather gleefully to his parents back home in Boston. You know, oh, I arrived and I met the great George Eliot, da 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 and oh, the, 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 her stepson was riding in agony <laughs> on the floor. Lewis was going out to get morphine. Hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, the me, other, me, me, yes. The other person who says something very mean about it is Friedrich Nietzsche, of course, who says, yeah. you know, they've got rid of the Christian God and oh. so they have to cling ever more t- tightly to Christian morality. And that, in a way, takes you right into the centre of the kind of moral issues of the mm. book and, and part of George Eliot's whole kind of ethical and religious journey. Has she got beyond criticism now in the universities? Um... Really, there are there are people who find her oddly enough. We don't, but they find her dry or difficult. Or I mean, even Virginia Woolf, who was responsible for her population, a popularity rising again uh, in a centenary uh, article in the TLS in 1919. Um, she praises George Eliot. You mentioned at the beginning, but she also says she murdered the English language some of the time. And it's true. You have to see that some of the her sentences and paragraphs are quite heavy, unnecessarily so sometimes. Yes, they are. I think it was, it's was heavy it, lifting getting through some of those. Some of it, yes. You look down the page, the worst yeah. full stop. <laughs> yeah. Ford Radix Ford, another great modernist, <laughs> described it actually. And some of it is unre- he couldn't bear it. It just gave him a headache. He had to have a lie down after reading Eliot. And I think Yates said her style was scruff. Something like a scrofula or something like that. Some very unattractive, unpleasant. So mm. the fall from grace is very, very quick. I mean, she dies in 80, doesn't she? 1880. And the fall from grace, by the 1890s, people are saying really mean things. Yes. But she's on. She's up there. And you think she's sort of cemented in, 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 in glory now? I think 
Sorry, I was just going to say, you read in Sunday supplements, I mean, a, a couple of years ago in the Sunday Times, Thomas Keneally um, say, you know, was asked his favourite book, what's the greatest greatest novel? Middlemarch. It's, it's the, it, nobody has ever outthought and outwritten her on human relationships. Mm. Well, I'll buy that. I go for that too. I mean, I think, you know, and actually D.H. Lawrence, so fairly mm. early, early in her resurgence, re, uh, as it were, said she was the first... A novelist to put all the action inside yeah. and that's another thing we might have perhaps said yeah. a bit more about how the narrator smoothly seamlessly goes in and out of people's minds their motivations their mm. feelings and so she's partly looking at them from outside and she's ironic she's you know she's 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 showing us the mistakes that they're making particularly Dorothea of course um and Lydgate but she's also in their minds and she can move in a paragraph from you know, the chorus of Middlemarch, what Middlemarch thinks about Mr. Casaubon, let's say, into what Mr. Casaubon himself is thinking and then back out again into a sort of rather general view about, you know, his inwardness and his difficulties. And the, uh, the producer is waiting patiently outside to make you an offer. To your coffee. <laughs> coffee, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Hello, I'm Mae Martin from Grown Up Land, the podcast where each week Bisha K. Ali and Ned Sedgwick and I untangle the adult world's most complex issues with the help of programs that you can hear on BBC Radio 4. Yeah, we only really deal with the big stuff. How close do we have to be for you to get a friendship tattoo with me? I could do it for you. Oh, really? I've done it with a needle and um, a Bic pen. Like Wait, a... a needle and a Bic... Were you in prison? No, I was at a dinner party and things got what? out of hand. I mean, that is an out-of-hand dinner. When a dinner party gets out of hand for me, we crack into their parents' port. Like, we know... <laughs> <laughs> That's Grown Up Land, and you can find it wherever you found this.